You are listening to WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, and in Rockland County at 91.9 FM, and online at WFMU.org. My name is Benjamin Walker. It's about 11.02 here in the studio, and uh, uh, thanks to Lisberg, we are doing a special hour for the next hour uh, using WFMU's new uh, video streaming capabilities that uh, you can find if you go to the WFMU homepage. I think we should be playing this live. WFMU's built some pretty amazing features into the new app, and you should be able to watch it on the phone as well. And uh, a few months ago, we were discussing this, and I said, you know, we should do like a special on surveillance. And then, uh, yeah, now it's time to do that special on surveillance. And uh, yours truly has come back to, to visit the station today. Uh, thanks to Lisberg for, for making room for this. But uh, I'm very, very excited because uh, joining us in the studio today is Susan McGregor, who is the assistant director of the Tau Center at the Columbia Journalism School. Hey, Susan, say hello. Hello. That's great. So I've uh, I got to hear Susan speak a few times now. And uh, if there was one person I'd want to talk to about surveillance for an hour, it would be her. So I want to thank you very much for coming on down. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, let's just plunge into this because an hour is going to be uh, fast. We have the comments going on the AccuPlaylist page. Liz just switched over. So we uh, even remembered the password for the old Too Much Information show. And uh, we have a show uh, play, Accu playlist going. And if you are watching the stream, you're going to be see some some of the images that some listeners uh, have sent in. Images of sensors and camera feeds uh, that uh, uh, they've been uh, documenting or wondering about. And we're going to talk about those. But it's not just about video surveillance. We're going to be talking about metadata, all kinds of biometric uh, uh, surveillance, and hopefully go with. Um, where we can do about it. Um, but first, let's just, um, if you could introduce yourself a bit, Susan, and talk about what you do and how surveillance has become a bigger part of what you do. Sure, thanks. Um, so um, I am wrapping up my third year at uh, Columbia Journalism School. And um, before I was at Columbia, I was uh, at the Wall Street Journal, and I worked on a series there called What They Know. Um, and What They Know is sort of an exploration um, of what kind of data was being collected by websites about visitors and users. Um, we did a lot of work on tracking cookies um, and all of that. And when I went to Columbia, uh, we started, you know, this idea was already sort of percolating. And I came into contact with some colleagues in the computer science department. I have some background in computer science as well. And uh, talking about uh, one of my colleagues in particular had uh, done her dissertation work on the, the idea of vanishing data. Um, and so if you have something of a technical background, you know that uh, things don't really disappear <laughs> in computers. Um, when we delete things or we move something to the trash, it isn't really gone. Um, and so I thought this was a really fascinating idea. And at the same time, um, it was becoming clear um, actually sort of how possible it was for um, data to be collected online sort of massively um, in ways that actually up until that time I hadn't really realized possible. I had sort of thought um, there's so much data going over the internet you just you couldn't possibly catch it all um, and I discovered sort of at the end of that year that I was wrong and you can catch it all um, and uh, were these the revelations that we all so this no this was actually a couple of years before um, but I had heard a couple of folks speak um, on the on the subject and realized that um, that that was the case. Actually, um, Laura Poitras and uh, Jake Applebaum were speaking at the Whitney, um, and this would be the spring of 2011, and uh, um, along with Bill Binney, and sort of saying, look, this is possible. And it was something that I, I really didn't appreciate until then. Um, and, and following that, understanding sort of what the implications were for journalists, as I'm uh, you know, a journalist and <laughs> work with many of them, um, began exploring, um, along with some colleagues, uh, ways to create communication apps that um, would would help protect uh, journalist communications. And so it's all kind of snowballed from there. I was doing that work at the end of last year. And then, of, of course, we had the, the Snowden revelations. Yeah. And, uh, and since then, it's... Uh, it's something that's really obviously become a mainstream talk it, uh, topic to discuss. And um, it's, you know, so really important. <laughs> so Poitras ends up blowing your mind first. Mm. 
in 2011 and then participates, obviously, with Glenn Greenwald in blowing all of our minds. Absolutely. Which is, I guess, is a, coming up about a year ago now. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you saw the um, Frontline PBS special that's airing right now on Surveillance. It's a two-part one. They ran part one last week, and uh, part two will be tomorrow. But there are... what really blows my mind about the surveillance story is that that you think it can't that you can't possibly learn anymore and like every few weeks there's another bombshell that comes out and i was really fascinating to watch i really recommend um checking out the um frontline special and i think some of the things on part two are what we're going to be talking about this hour about sort of commercial enterprises and other Mm -hmm. kinds of surveillance besides video government surveillance but for me one of the most amazing revelations in the hour was they had Bill Keller and James Risen, the reporter, uh, the defense or technology surveillance <laughs> reporter, uh, talking about how they were going to break the metadata collection story in 2004, right before the election. And Bush convinced Bill Keller not to, to, to spike the story, not to run the story. Yeah. And uh, James Risen is on camera talking about it, how it was a kind of a game of chicken in 2005 when he was going to publish the story in a book. And Bill Keller on camera admits that, uh, 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 that the only reason they published it was because Risen was going to go public and it would have made them look bad. Yeah. But, uh, uh, and then, you know, I was really excited for the everyone to talk about it. And then the Jill Abramson story <laughs> happened the next day. <laughs> but... Uh, Besides, you know, thinking back to that moment in 2011, what has sort of surprised you? What what do you feel are some of the things that we should be really paying attention to and and changing how we talk about surveillance that have happened over the last year, sort of post-Snowden? Well, I think, I mean, I think the, you know, some of the biggest, the biggest things are, are, I think the biggest area for everyone to be thinking about is is email, actually. Um, And what is accessible, um, what what can be surveilled via email. Um, Basically, the way the law is written right now, um, if an email is opened, or more than 180 days old, it's essentially fair game. It doesn't require a warrant um, uh, for law enforcement to to look at it. Um, and you know, it's it it's an it's a the reality of a situation. I think runs counter to most people's expectations because we call it email, and so we expect it to be like an electronic version of mail, and it's really not. Um, and so I think you know, I I think it's also important that that folks realize that we're at a really um, I mean. With, with surveillance, with net neutrality, we're at a really important policy moment right now. So I think it's not, um, I think the other thing to, to realize is that it's not just about technology and it's not just about encryption mm-hmm. and it's not about the, you know, solely about the digital stuff. Um, it's really about, you know, s- sort of, you know, old fashioned political action at this point and, um, and really kind of uh, getting active around these, around these subjects as a matter of policy. Um, because, frankly, until the laws change, you know, the, the, this is always going to be possible. Um, it's the way the systems are designed, and they're designed that way of necessity. Um, so we really have to get uh, we really have to get together on the on the legislative side and really change how these things are allowed to be legally handled. Because yeah. you know that was the thing when the Snowden stuff broke last year. Um, that you know sort of surprised me um, was not what I was not what I expected. Was when you know. Uh, you know, Pelosi and these folks come out and say, "Yeah, of course." You know, we've. <laughs> what are you talking about? We've been we've we've been doing this for seven years. You know, we've been collecting this metadata for ages, um, just totally unfazed. Um, you know, even as you know, the public was was really quite shocked. So, although I I, I would argue that what go along with that there was a lot you know a, a large public reaction that also was not shocked or phased. It seemed like you hear a lot of like, "Well, I don't have anything to hide," <laughs> that this might not be. So what? such a bad thing i mean did did you would you say that 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 was something you noticed as being a prevalent response as well yeah i think i mean i think there's i think there's naturally a tendency to think you know there must there must be a good reason for this i think especially given the sort of um uh you know i I think given that the that there wasn't sort of this scramble um on the political side to say you know oh my gosh you know what what's happening but just sort of yeah of course we're doing this um you know i think we've become very conditioned to to think you know we're in a war on terror (laughs) um and so all you know this all needs to happen um and you know obviously you know the sort of i have nothing to hide um argument comes up or you know sort of statement comes up a lot but i think the uh i mean (laughs) 
one thing that I think is important is to realize that it's not just you. It's also like your children <laughs> um, is a really important thing to uh. realize. These things are these things are happening to everyone. And unless you're sure that your kids are not on the internet, um, then uh, you know theoretically there are laws around that. But uh, I think we know that those don't always uh, hold up the same way. And and also. Um, you know, and really what we're talking about is kind of the idea of, of, of personal, uh, is the idea of identity and personal integrity, right? The ability to be who you want to be and, and sort of an independence. And it's not about, you know, what's often said is it's not about having something to hide. It's, you know, do you have something to protect or someone to protect? And I think that's, um, that's really the sort of thing, the thing to consider. This is about the ability to be who you are. And um, as one friend of mine mentioned, you know, sometimes that means the ability to ask questions. Um, one of the really important things that we can do on the internet is be able to ask questions that uh, we couldn't ask in another sphere and we can't necessarily always ask as ourselves, right? So there's a really important component of the freedom to explore and to learn um, and access information. And uh, that's not something that, that one can do freely if you feel you're being watched all the time. Absolutely. So uh, if you're just tuning in, uh, you're listening to a one-hour special uh, here on uh, surveillance. Uh, my name is Benjamin Walker. Uh, we're squatting on Liz's show. Uh, uh, Susan McGregor from the Tau Center uh, for Journalism at Columbia is here. And talking about that um, sort of reframing how we're talking ab about surveillance and w can you talk a little bit about uh, this white paper that you're working <laughs> on there? Because I feel it's it's for journalists, but you know what you just referenced about you know being able to function in a society without being watched kind of goes beyond just the scope of journalists. Yeah, I mean, the, so the the white paper is coming out in a, a little less than a month now, and it is um, sort of an overview of the legal and technical uh, reality that we're operating in, and um, and and it is actually all of us. So the interesting or you know, one of the interesting things is that there's actually nothing in this, um, or there's very little in it that specifically pertains to journalists. So it's, you know, if you're talking about email communications, telephone communications, it's actually everybody, right? There's not special systems that journalists are using or there isn't uh, a special access because they're journalists. And so, um, you know, the idea is to really take a, a, a detailed look at, you know, how the law um seize the privacy or lack thereof around our various types of digital communications, um, understanding how the systems work, exactly what is exposed and when um, when we send an email or make a telephone call, and then also, uh, you know, strategies for, um, for sort of uh, responding to that. So, you know, tools and approaches that you can use if, um, if you do need to be able to do yeah. that thing, like ask a question uh, without being tracked for it. <laughs> yeah. So <clears throat> we, we, we've gathered a few things to, to play over the air and show on the video stream. But I kind of want to go back to, to video because I think that uh, you know, one of the things both Susan and I have been talking about is, you know, uh, I think 1984 was such a, a, a meme since Snowden, you know, Snowden even said in his Christmas address, you know, it's worse than 1984. And you kept, kept really hearing that. And I felt that... Uh, uh, you know, one of the big arguments of 1984 is that, you know, the cameras will always be, they're two-way, they'll always be spying on us. And if there was a, an academic in 1984 that, uh, Neil Postman, who came out mm -hmm. uh, with a book that, that that year that's amusing ourselves to death, who sort of, you know, was really one of the first people who pushed back against the, that idea and said, no, the real issue is that we're giving away our own freedoms. We're the ones choosing to, you know, interact with these screens and especially talking about the television. And I feel that, you know, that, that today, that that argument is kind of, you could kind of say that that doesn't work anymore because the screens that we interact with today are, are just embedded in part of our lives and we could not do that. But having just made a, a piece myself on 1984, I was realizing how many of the same arguments we're having today we were actually having in the year 1984. Yeah. <laughs> and I have a little clip about, uh, this was on 2020, about uh, uh, video that I feel sort of, I want to just play a minute of here. And you can watch it on the screen too. This is the subject of John's report tonight, the home videotape recorder, and I hear that it's the biggest craze since uh, the hula hoop. They're selling unbelievably well. Even the manufacturers are selling more than they ever expected to. They think maybe seven million this year. Some people buy several. 
In the suburbs of New York, Steve Lincoln lives in a house stuffed with electronics. I'm a video maniac, and my house is full of uh, video equipment, including a VHS recorder, beta recorder. Lincoln's home runs on remote control. With these, he adjusts TV monitors and stereo sound all over the house. The telephone is also equipped with remote control capabilities so that I can call the help my home from anywhere in the world and turn on my VCR. Even the baby in Steve's world has her own TV channel. He can watch her from all over the house. She also has her own VCR. Steve plays educational tapes on it. For his own use, he has a thousand videotapes. He needs a computer to keep track of it all. If I had a choice of uh, buying a dinner or a new videotape, I'd probably buy the videotape. I love thinking that maybe I'm going to run into that girl sometime, <laughs> you know, the baby that's in that. It's in the area, you know, who grew up. She grew up with the camera. I'm sure she uh, uh, is posting a lot of things. Uh, maybe she's just like her father and has, you know, the Facebook channel with uh, everything public yeah. as well. But uh, what I love about that piece is that, you know, you see this early sense of that it's not just... The, the, the ones doing the recording, it's not... Big Brother does not have to record us because we are doing it for him. We're yeah. already recording everything and putting it all out there. And the problem is is when all of that is aggregated and collected. And that's really what we're, we have Susan here to talk about today. So I want to play this um, uh, video that, you, that we found that is associated with some work you did at the journal. You want to set this up for us? Sure. So um, one of the big topics... Uh, of uh, the What They Know series was was advertising tracking cookies. So little little bits of text, really, that get stored on your computer or stored on your browser. Um, and uh, some colleagues of mine uh, made a really fantastic video kind of illustrating and explaining uh, what these what these are and how they work. Um, and so it's, it just paints a really clear picture of, of what's going on behind the scenes when you're browsing the Internet. And if, and if you have the WFMU app, you, you can, like, open up the Ustream, or if you are, just go to the website. We have uh, the video playing on uh, right above the Accu playlist uh, on the homepage, so uh, you can check it out there. But let's, uh, let's watch this. Imagine you walk into a small town, and in that small town you notice a bookstore. You walk into the store and browse its aisles. You pause and you pick up, say, David McCullough's biography on John Adams. But after mulling it over, you decide you don't have time for books. You leave the store, and from there you walk down Main Street, and this time you notice a video store. You walk in, and one of the first things you see is a poster advertising John Adams, HBO's adaptation of David McCall's biography. Hmm, coincidence? Maybe in the real world, but when you surf the web, seeing advertisements for products that match your personal interests is rarely a coincidence. It's called behavioral targeting, and when it's done from site to site, it's achieved through tracking. Advertisers see it as an effective tool, but some people worry that it's a violation of their privacy. At the center of this debate is what's known as a third-party cookie, a small text file that stores information on your hard drive. That's what allows for this sort of tracking to take place. So how does it work? Well, to understand third-party cookies, we need to understand cookies. To understand cookies, we talk to the cookie creator himself. This is Lou Montulli, probably best known for his early work on the World Wide Web. Before dropping out of college, Lou wrote Lynx, one of the first web browsers, and as one of the founding engineers of Netscape, remember them? He developed what today is an integral part of our everyday experience of the web, the now ubiquitous cookie. Lou tells us why we even needed a cookie in the first place. So in 1994, we were working on an e-commerce solution for the web. What we wanted to allow was a shopping cart uh, so that users could select products and uh, put them into this shopping cart and uh, select further products and then go through a checkout process. Um, at that time, the web didn't have any concept of memory. Without memory, if customers placed an item in their cart, it would disappear the moment they visited another site. 
So to solve this shopping cart problem, Lou created the cookie. First, let's identify the main players. To start, there's you and your computer, and on your computer you have your browser, Firefox, IE, Chrome, take your pick. Next, you have the website, which delivers the pages that you visit, Amazon, eBay, Google, etc. When you go to a site for the first time, it wants to remember you, so it assigns you an ID number that's contained in a little text file called a cookie. Then, whenever the server sends a web page back to you, it includes the cookie with it. That ID number lets the site remember the pages you visit, the products you store in your shopping cart, and whatever information you've provided, such as your username, your real name, or your billing address. In your computer, the cookie is linked to the name of the site, so that every time you visit it, the site will recognize you. Once the cookie is in place, you can add a toaster to your cart without it ever disappearing. Unless you delete the cookie, the toaster will stay in your cart even if you visit another page or another site. It's like having great customer service at a cafe where the barista remembers your name and your drink. Most people know that a site has access to your browsing history within its own site. It's not surprising when Amazon.com sees that you've looked at David McCullough's John Adams and then recommends another book in the same genre. And a lot of people find it helpful. But it's a little different when you visit a separate site altogether that seems to know about your taste too. Even in the early stages of cookie creation, Lou was concerned about privacy issues. A fair amount of, of, of uh, effort was given to try to keep cookies from being shared between various websites that are not related. Although limits were built into the cookie at the start, trackers, which are often ad networks, have found ways to work around those limitations, allowing them to follow your movements from site to site. They do this using the third-party cookie. Advertisers also request that websites install cookies on your computer. These are known as third-party cookies because they piggyback off the original site you visited. For example, when you visit a site that has a banner ad, let's call it site number one, your browser is communicating with both site number one and the advertiser. The advertiser, like the original site you visited, is also assigning your computer an ID number using the third-party cookie. This is what sets the stage for behavioral targeting. So how does a third-party cookie allow for behavioral targeting? Let's say you visit another site, site number two, and that site also has a relationship with the same advertiser. When you arrive at the site, the advertiser will check your cookie file and look for its cookie. If the cookie is there, the advertiser will remember you and show you a related ad. It'll also add information saying you visited site number two. Ad networks are companies that do this kind of tracking on hundreds or thousands of sites they do business with. The bigger the ad network, the greater its potential to track your online habits across the web and develop a profile of you. Then, it can show you ads for products you are more likely to buy. A lot of people concerned with privacy probably already know to delete their cookies, but trackers have figured out ways to work around this. Other tracking methods are less noticeable and harder to remove. Some, such as flash cookies, can respawn cookies you've deleted without your even knowing it. As the tracking business becomes a growing part of the online advertising ecosystem, privacy advocates are pushing for more regulation. They want greater transparency and better options for consumers to control what's known about them, so that when you browse the online bookstore and look at that copy of John Adams, you can decide who knows about it. For The Wall Street Journal, this is Christina Sui. Okay, so if you were following along on the video stream, you were able to, to see that video. Uh, my name is Benjamin Walker. You are listening to WFMU. Our guest for this hour is Susan McGregor, who worked on that series that that video was a part of. And uh, I just want to uh, throw out that if you want to leave any comments in the on the AccuPlaylist page that we have up, we can get to those, any questions. Because where we want to end up in this hour is how... Uh, what we can do, what are some of the things we can do, why should we do some of the things we do to sort of push back against that wonderful phrase, behavioral targeting. Because that's, I guess, coming back to the video streams, really where those two link up, is that when you know you are being watched, your behavior is going to be modified. And when you know now that this is how much they can track you online through your behavior, it is behavior modification. Is that a good way to connect the two there? 
Yeah, yeah. I think so. All right. We're going to go with that. Um, but uh, walk us through here some, some of the, you know, and I think a lot of our listeners uh, here at WFMU are aware somewhat, at least peripherally, ambiently aware of just, you know, how cookies work and how the metadata is aggregated and collected. But walk us through, you know, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, I want to get back to the commercial aspects, but I, I think there's a few other projects you've worked on about metadata and, 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 and what it all means. Sure. So, I mean, uh, if you're on the video feed now, uh, what you're seeing is sort of a... Um, uh, an, an illustrated version of uh, what happens on the internet, and so you know, basically, the idea here is just to is just to visualize um, how how information moves around the internet. So I think you know the issue is that um, the when we do when we have digital communications, it's not a single system, right? It feels seamless to us. We open up our computer, the wireless you know goes on, it connects to our wireless router in the background, and you know. We're on the web. Um, and in reality, it's actually, uh, these things are sort of many layers of systems. And it's one of the things that makes uh, sort of digital security and uh, and protecting your privacy online so complicated is the fact, or apparently complicated, is the fact that it isn't a single system. Um, and so there's kind of different layers that you have to think about. Um, but basically, you know, the, the issue is that we have, uh, y- you know, you want to connect securely to anything you're connecting to, um, whether it's your router, um, you know, which means don't don't use unsecured wireless networks, particularly in random locations, um, and. Um, uh, and you want to protect your devices. I think it's amazing these days because so many of us have multiple devices. We have these really very expensive mm-hmm. pieces of electronics, but we, you know, we kind of leave them on the table in the coffee shop and we use the restroom and we kind of put them, you know, we leave them. On the, and the reality is that um, a lot of digital security is actually physical security. So a lot about protecting your information is just, you know, making sure that you've encrypted your hard drive and have a real password on it and not leaving not leaving your computer out um, not using random USB drives that you're given um, uh, is a big part of and not and not downloading things that you don't recognize a lot of us kind of know that today but um, you know as a, a, a colleague of mine says as far as your computer is concerned you're God <laughs> and so anything that you install or download on your computer um, can kind of do anything. It can send your information out to the web, and uh, we know that um, you know sometimes you actually get USB drives <laughs> shipped new that have malware on them. Um, and really, it's just kind of this. Uh, it is its own kind of um, dragnet where the idea is to just collect as much information as possible on the uh, mm-hmm. off chance that it will be useful, and the off chance that it can be used, you know, for identity theft or something like that. Um, so yeah, basically, you know, this is just a quick overview. You just always want to use uh, a secure connection as possible. Um, is pretty much what it comes down to, and and physically protect your devices. Um, so I think you had something you were going to show us uh, uh, related to sort of walking through, looking at what people can see when you visit a website. Is that? Mm-hmm. So. Um, so I, I think one of the things that is not necessarily apparent to us when we uh, when we use the web is that, um, among other things, one of the one of the pieces of information that is visible to the websites that you visit is actually your within relative proximity your physical location. Um, so IP addresses, internet protocol addresses, um, actually correspond to geographic locations. They are their own kind of map, um, and so. Uh, um, what we're looking at on the video feed right now is actually this is uh, data coming off. It ap- happens to be a U.S. government website, um, and it looks like a whole lot of gibberish. But in there, um, we can find in uh, different uh, in each entry. There's actually a location. So I'll do a quick highlight here where we can see there's actually a latitude and a longitude that comes with each of these entries. Um, so uh, you can actually look at this and see the, f- the geographic location, where in the world people were logging on from, if their login ID is part of it. And this is just an example because uh, this server happens to be set up to show us this information, but actually every web server in the world huh. um, is, is noting that. So it doesn't matter if you're logged in or not. Um, basically, every time you connect 
to a website. It knows basically where you're coming from and uh, how much time you spend there. All of that is logged and all of that information is accessible to law enforcement. Um, it is defined as metadata and not considered private. And so uh, if it ever comes to the point where somebody wants to know what you were looking at and when uh, mm. and where from, that's highly, highly accessible. Yeah. But again, moving that outside of uh, the law enforcement context, mm. it seems that these are the same technologies and the same processes that are being used perhaps to uh, surveil um, uh, people who are using EBT services or, 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 or government assistance programs. Sure. I mean, I think I think the I think one of the most important I, I think one of the most important things to realize about this uh, you know about our sort of new newfound awareness of digital surveillance is that um, you know surveillance is as old as history, right? Uh, watching populations that are considered outside the norm or um, potentially problematic uh, is is you know, really sort of as old as time. And so, uh, you know, I th one of the things that I think about, I live, uh, uh, I live sort of just south of Harlem, and one of the things I always think about is stop and frisk in New York City, right? I mean, we're... Big we're, story last year. Yeah, huge <laughs> ongoing story. Um, and, you know, the fact that there, there are, you know, countless communities that are used to being surveilled, and sur surveillance isn't just about, you know, it isn't just about somebody tracking your metadata. Um, and uh, and many of the systems that we have in place um, have been used. You know, there. I think one of the things is that all of these technologies, in at their heart, were designed for another purpose, right? So you know, you take something like EBT, um, you know, or you take something like the internet, you know, metadata that's being logged on the internet. It wasn't designed for surveillance, um, but it serves that purpose yeah. very, very well. Um, and so it it you, you know you have to sort of think about um, why those things uh, why those systems are in place and you can't be wholesale in your rejection of them because they actually do serve a valid purpose so how can we um, create an environment where we can both have and use the services that we need, yeah. um, but without, you know, compromising our fundamental <laughs> rights. It, it seems that, you know, from, 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 it seems that like you could say that, that, that maybe the solution is simple and that the solution is simply just making sure these things are not connected together. You know, and, and this is something that, you know, they talked about uh, over, you know, some of the NSA programs that were revealed through Snowden and through Ryzen was that there was a version of it that did strip out user information that anonymized some of the data that they were collecting. Is that, is, is that perhaps a solution or is that not the... the in other words, is it possible to imagine there's a technology solution? So it's actually the interesting thing. So de-anonymization is actually a really difficult thing to do um, because as soon as you as soon as you start intersecting data sets, um, patterns emerge very yeah. quickly. Um, and uh, uh, there's a scholar, um, uh, Latanya Sweeney, who has done work on this uh, for many years. Um, and you know she famously she famously was able to individually identify people. This was sort of before high bandwidth internet was was common. And I think she purchased she purchased two different CDs of sort of general information, both of which had been quote unquote anonymized. And by putting them together, was able to individually identify people. And this was 15 years ago. Um, you know, and when you were paying twenty dollars for a CD-ROM of data. <laughs> um, so you know, the the issue is. I mean, I I I expect that it is theoretically possible, but it's very difficult to do effectively when you have so many different types of data, so many different lenses on people um, that that can be. Yeah. Quite efficiently combined, but interestingly, though, you will, you, you would have to say though that it is a pattern that you notice. And like I'm thinking of the Talking Heads from the Frontline special last mm -hmm. week, the good guys in the NSA, the ones that are pre <laughs> presented as, I guess, maybe good cop is a better <laughs> way to say. It. But the good cop, bad cop scenarios, the good cops are all saying that no, there are tech simple technology solutions that could protect Americans, respect the Constitution, and allow us to surveil the bad guys, look out, keep America safe, and keep American citizens' rights and protect them. Yeah, no, and, but I, I, again, I think that like the, the story you just talked about with the CD-ROMs kind of says that that's 
not exactly possible. It's very, it's it, it's very difficult. I mean, I think I think what you can do is you can certainly make rules, and in theory, that many of those yeah. rules are already in place, right? Um, but you know, can you? I mean, actually, an, an interesting area of research right now is is sort of um, auditing. Can you prove that people are following the rules? Yeah. Um, can you check if people are following the rules? And um, you know, obviously, that's what the rule of law is about, right? Um, but uh, I, I am not a statistician, but I suspect it would be very, very difficult to do yeah. at scale. I, the other day, I was in Tompkins Square Park, and there was this. Ama- it was like two mothers and a father, like you know, with a lot of kids sit- sitting by the playground. And I overheard their conversation. They were talking about going to the circus and how you can't go to the circus anymore because there are cameras there that are connected. I mean, this was the guy mm-hmm. mansplaining <laughs> a bit to the to the to the women with kids. But his theory, well, h- what he was saying is that there are cameras cameras now at the circus connected to the IRS that can tell like just through through uh, surveilling yeah. the audience that there are some people that shouldn't be there because they're on government assistance programs and then you know they can even t- tell by the price of the ticket area and then that information is collected and then sent back to 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 to, to you know to other agencies right. that could act on that information um, well, I mean, I think uh, you know that 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 kind of thing. I mean, operates often very off uh, operates off of facial recognition, um, which I think um, is you know one of the this uh, the issue of biometric information, biometric identifiers, your face, your fingerprints. Um, uh, you know, so uh, the idea of how do you protect yourself against that kind of surveillance, and this, you know, this issue goes back a hundred years from you know the introduction of uh, of still cameras. You know, yeah. this, um, you know, some very very famous decision um, by Justice Brandeis. You know, this issue of people's images being captured on the street, um, and you know, the United States is unusual. Um, among Western, I mean, somewhat unusual among Western countries in that you're allowed to take pictures of people in public. If you go to France, it's not legal to take a picture of someone on the street um, and and publish it. Um, That's why we have better street photography books. (laughs) True. Um, But anyhow, I mean, I think it's this this idea of of, um, how do we protect our information. It isn't just digital. And I think this sort of goes back to this idea of, you know, we recognize that a lot of inappropriate surveillance of um, of communities takes place in ways that they are n- around things that they are not able to hide. We, you know, unless you're going to wear makeup, uh. you know, crazy makeup to to make your face unrecognizable to a camera, you don't have a choice. And so, in that environment, um, you know, you really don't have a choice. It's not just about oh, I'm going to go off. You know, I could go off, but you could go off the grid. You could uh. not do this. Um, you have to. You have to live with your face, and you have to carry it around with you. And so, um, you know, reflecting on that um, as a as a really non-optional way of of. But where with where that. are we in terms of technology with biometric sensors? And, and and one of the things we had some listeners send in were some images of some sensors that we've been kind of mm. playing on a loop. But you know, I actually expect. I was hoping maybe you would say, "Oh yeah, we're not there for facial recognition stuff." <laughs> we had no, an, we are. and we and we would just say, "That's not happening." But uh, uh, yeah, so so let's talk about you know where we're, before before we're going to end up here. And, and I just want to throw out one more time: uh, my name is Benjamin Walker. You're listening to WFMU. We're doing a special hour here, squatting on Lisberg's uh, show with Susan McGregor, talking about surveillance and security issues. And we're going to end up with the hour talking about what are some of the things we can do as individuals and as citizens. And if you have a question or something you wonder about, drop it into the comments thread and we'll get to it. But let's just, before we go there, let's talk about some of these other sensors. And when you add that information to the information that's already being collected, where's that taking us? I mean, you know, they. I have a, a colleague at Columbia who recently, in collaboration with a, um, with a lawyer, uh, was doing some work uh, to see how um, how quickly you could deduce, uh, essentially predict a person's location if you looked at GPS data. So if you had the GPS on on your phone, um, how long would, would uh, law enforcement or how long would someone need to collect that information to be able to predict your movements? Um, and their, their preliminary conclusion is about a week. Um, and interestingly, what they discovered, uh, I think this is amazing, is that our, our movements are actually more predictable on the weekend than they are uh. during the week over time. Um, so, I mean, really, it's, 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 it's getting to that. I mean, it is 
effectively at that point where it's not just, um, you know, seeing where you are, but knowing where you will be, knowing what you will be doing, who you will be with. Um, and, you know, that has, I think that has really terrifying implications. Yeah. Um, and and I think it really, you know, as, as we sort of touched on, I think it just, um, we're aware, you know, in the back of our minds, we're aware of the system and we don't feel at liberty um, to, to do and think and, and say and be who we want to be or choose to be. Um, and there's also that the sort of whole his, the whole issue of history, right? That we're kind of being followed around um, by our history in a way that um, you know I think I think uh, has implications for the way that we develop as well. You know, I mean, if I think back to adolescence. We all try on different identities um, usually, and now those identities are not only imprinted but broadcast um, and kind of never go away. And so, what does that mean as well? Yeah. Um, but, you know, and, and a lot of researchers have talked about this. I mean, I'm thinking even like Dana Boyd talking about uh, uh, youth and, and Facebook, though. But, you know, as we watch digital natives sort of become, you know, uh, go into their 20s, do you feel that like that, that that's true, that like some of the things that they've done have, have actually stuck with them? Can, can, you know, that, now, that, now that that was sort of the argument, right, that there, there are things, and I believe that, I actually do believe that everything you say will be used against you, <laughs> but uh, I'm a firm believer in that one. But it, do, we, do we have evidence to, to sort of see that the, like, the behavior modification is happening? You know, it's interesting. I um, I mean, I, I actually think that the scholarship, and I mean, uh, Dana Boyd is a, is a wonderful expert on this, um, you know, and we see this come out in news headlines a bit too. Um, not surprisingly, um, you know, <laughs> the kids are all right, <laughs> right? They, I mean, um, you know, uh, you know, younger generations today, they know exactly what's happening. Um, they know exactly how they're being, how these systems can be used to watch them, and they are actually, um, I, you know, I think it's actually, um, you know, earlier generations. I think it's older, <laughs> you know, not even older, right? Older than you know, twenties. That uh, that sort of need the education on this front because you know this, the digital natives, um, you know they under, they understand this data is being collected. They switch apps. They have multiple accounts. You know they know how they know how to game the system. And I think that's that's sort of another. It's a it's sort of another interesting. Um, it's sort of an irony of the whole thing, and especially if you think about this as oh security, you know, and we have to you know keep people safe. You know the problem is is that if you put too much faith in the work of that system, you're blind to the people who are subverting it, yeah. right? In other words, if you rely too much on, on if, you, if you put too much faith in the quality of what that information shows you, you're, you're blind to anyone who knows how to get around it. Um, and those people are not, you know, that's not going to be someone who is scared to you know, it's not going to be somebody asking a question on the internet, um, you know, and is embarrassed about it, and so they put on private browsing or whatever. You know, it's going to be it, that. It's going to be the dangerous people probably who do that. Um, you know, so it's a uh, it's it's a sort of potential and probable backfiring of the whole thing. Yeah. So we're going to move on to. I guess we've only got 15 minutes left. I told you this hour would go fast. <laughs> Um, but uh, we want to end up with talking about some of the things that, that we can do. Um, but before before we go there, I just want to make sure that we've, we've talked about the metadata. And I have to say that what you just simply rolled out with the story about the CD-ROMs is kind of, again, like we hear this time and time again that, that the good cop perspective, which is, no, we can safeguard, that we can, we can keep your identity safe we can we can take you and sort of that's what the advertisers promise us too right we're talking about you know the video that you showed us earlier is that like no 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 we're just collecting this data but you know at the end of the day no one will know who you are but then we know that there are these uh, companies that are buying and selling and doing that analysis so they can sell to other advertisers your information plus the supposedly anonymous information together but I guess you know, how, how, how can we shut that argument down? Again, I just saw this on national television where, you know, we were told that, oh, we can keep people safe. How do we shut that down? Uh, shut down the argument? Yeah, or, like, or just or like move... The <laughs> or, or, or offer a rebuttal. Is it, is it oh. a... Oh, I mean, I, I, you know, I think the... Uh, uh, I mean, I, th I think the obvious... I think the obvious thing is that um, anytime data can be intersected, it, it can be, you know, with within a couple of steps can be de-anonymized, right? And so 
you know, the um, unless basically unless you make it illegal to buy and sell information, right? Unless you don't unless you don't let companies actually trade in data. Um, you know, all I'm hearing is the NRA, sort of like the new version <laughs> of the like. <laughs> if I can't buy and sell data, only the criminal. Yeah, it's, it's terrible. But uh, uh, so our guest today is Susan McGregor, and we're going to move on now towards uh, learning about some of the things that we can do as uh, as trying to live in this brave new world. So you have, uh, I think, some more slides. Oh yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm like, I don't and you can watch along on the uh, WFMU homepage or on the app? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the basic strategies are, are quite simple and um, most of them are most of them are things that you that are available to you already. Um, so, I mean, uh, you know, really basic things. Um, use secured wireless. Um, uh, there's a great... Um, there is a great um, plugin from uh, the EFF uh, called HTTPS Everywhere. So when you connect to a website, so you, it's just a little plugin you can install in your browser, and that will give you a secure connection wherever possible to any website you visit. Um, probably the biggest thing is um, looking at uh, uh, is your passwords. <laughs> Right. This is the this is the biggest thing uh, on your accounts. You know, if you have that operation for the, the that that option for the two step auth, where it you know also sends a message to your cell phone, do it. Um, the best way to think about it is not passwords, but passphrases. Um, you know, a favorite song lyric is fine. <laughs> um, if you have an inside joke with your best friend and it's you know a several word phrase, those are great. Those things make great passwords. They're memorable. Um, you know, don't don't use those ran don't use random USB drives, um, and you know keep your uh, keep your things safe and uh, you know your actual physical devices in your possession. Um, you know that's sort of the main thing. You know if you are uh, if you are concerned, you know if you want to be able to do something like browse the web um, anonymously, um, the Tor browser bundle is a really fantastic tool. Uh, you download it and double click it. It works just like a regular browser. Um, you know, what that what Tor does specifically is that issue of your location being visible. Um, Tor Tor hides your location by by sort of sending your traffic, your your web traffic through a little pipe um, so that it pops out somewhere else in the world. Um, you know, those are the main things and, yeah. and and you know you can get sort of more elaborate from there. You can start dealing with things like encryption and all of that. But um, but really, just some some very basic things about how you connect to the web um, and what you do there. Uh, you know how you connect it and and um, and how you browse. Really simple things don't doesn't take a minute. But the thing, the key word there is hide, and it seems that one of the things we've learned from the Snowden revelations is that when people do use encryption or do even take steps to hide or protect, mm -hmm. <laughs> they become more target, more of a target. Sometimes, I mean, and 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 yet, of course, that is an argument for all of us doing it more, right? Yeah. So the the reality is that, um, you know, I see where you're going. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's 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 is that you know it's you want to do these things. Um, you want to do these things not 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 necessarily even because you're trying to quote unquote protect the information that you that you're using, but basically we're all better protected. It's it's a herd protection. The more people who use encryption, yeah. the more people who use these tools, the better off you are. And the same thing goes for using something like Tor, um, you know, which we know is is um, a necessary option for people in repressive. Uh, regimes worldwide. Um, everyone who uses Tor, it helps them because it helps their it helps their uh, traffic's hide in the crowd. So I'm not a technologist, but I want to run my my little idea by yeah. you. So it seems to me that maybe you know the hiding thing is is uh, uh, not you know going you know one one of the things that's impressed me from again those revelations was that just that the government actually will target people you mm. know who are encrypt using encryption services or Tor, and it seems that maybe a better way like can can we just invent a uh, a program where I can stall on my laptop and I go online and it just visits 8 million other websites in the background <laughs> at the same time. So I'm just like spewing out like tons and tons of data, but I, where I'm really going would, would just be sort of hidden in there. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of that. I don't- Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. I'm ready to accept my award. 
Does that work? Um, I mean, in principle, it works. It's the same. It's the same idea. Um, I'm trying to think technically how one would execute that. Um, but I mean, the the idea of sort of uh, of, of piggybacking traffic uh, definitely. Um, you know, is definitely out there, and there are some. There are some things where uh, it's not so much that you log on and you're spewing eight million things, but you can actually let um, you can install something on your website that lets other people use that website mm. as a essentially as a portal, as a little. I mean, in that case, as a little tour tour node. Um, so you know, it's a, it's a similar principle, right? Which is that um, uh, which is just that idea of creating noise. Yes, right? the noise. That's and we've we've uh, we've got a few other things to show here uh, when it comes to noise. And and it, it seems like a lot of artists or digital artists have have have, have uh, examined this one. Uh, maybe not inventing my uh, plugin. And you know, if anyone wants <laughs> to go invent that, go ahead. I mean, I just kind of made that up. I don't, I don't know if it would really work. But uh, the noise thing does attract me as, as a sort of as a response to and rather than hiding. It seems to me that like the way my uh, vi- view of the world, like that's that's probably you're gonna have more success on that. Sure, I mean I used to. So one of the one of the projects that I did, um, uh, which was this, uh, I made you know jewelry pieces that uh, that hid that hid USB keys. You're wearing one around um, your neck now. This uh, this actually is a ah. this is an identity. This is an identifier. It's kind of the opposite, but it's a, it's a similar. It's sort of a complement of the of that idea. And you know I I just uh, this came to me because I was doing research in this topic and I was thinking you know when we talk about this stuff we're always talking about you know encryption and technology and all this stuff and that's all well and good. Um, but, you know, how do we, how do regular people, how do we engage this, especially if maybe we don't even use these systems that much? And I kind of, and I just used to say to people, you know, what if we all just walked around with, you know, 12 USB keys with encrypted Hello Kitty cartoons on them? You know, I mean, if we just did that as a matter of course, you know, and to me that's noise, right? We're carrying around a bunch of data, and, and most of which is useless and you know it's not worth searching you know um, you're not in the hello kitty fan club yeah, are you? it's true, it's true. I'm, and you know I there are like people I'm gasping right now i was gonna say i'm never gonna get in now either that's the problem um but uh you know that there that there are ways to kind of you know participate and you know create that noise um that all of us have access to um and again, you know, on the digital side, doing some of this stuff using some of these tools like Tor is a way to do that. Um, and you know, also frankly, like you know, when when you're asked for information on a website or for a login or whatever, you know, enter as little as possible. Yeah. Um, I know people who intentionally scramble that, right? And it, that's also a really simple trick. You know, um, you don't, you know just just put in as little as you have to and unless unless you're legally obligated you don't even have to put in the right stuff Mm. um you know and so uh that's another way to sort of introduce noise into the system create multiple email addresses you know um i know somebody who this is way smarter than i am who has a separate email account she uses for all like um you know promotions that 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 she gets and it's just that's where Very all smart. that stuff goes right so she doesn't even have to look at it in her inbox uh. um you know and and so it's things like that um that you can do as well that that introduce that noise into the system you know so i think the relationship between hiding and noise is kind of complementary yeah. you know and you uh these uh usb things you made those <laughs> as part of a group that you were working with uh, sh- a group show at mm-hmm. ibeam i think that was was it last year yeah it was last october the yeah. prism prism breakup um was the show and um a lot of really great work there um but yeah, kind of looking, you know, in various lenses on the themes of, of surveillance and privacy. And and Adam Harvey participated in that one too. Yeah, I think so. Um, and and his was the work we saw earlier with um, with the fa- the anti facial recognition makeup, and um, he's done a few things uh, like that, some obscuring. Uh, anti-satellite hoodie the anti-satellite hoodie yeah and uh there's another one the the photo is not super illustrative but um uh something called the attack jacket which came out from mit which is part of their sort of defensive clothing uh program and i i believe it um emits an electric current if someone touches it (laughs) if you get grabbed it will actually shock that person um so you know lots of really creative ways to think about this stuff and and think about um yeah, both both hiding and protecting. Well, what one of my favorite things about talking to you is is just 
thinking differently about how to talk about surveillance. And can you t talk about this uh, graphic novel that you're working on now? This is a great project. <laughs> so I'm working on, it's, it's, it's part of my white paper actually, but looking, um, working with an illustrator, a fantastic illustrator, um, Matteo Farinella, who um, recently came out with uh, his first book. He collaborated uh, called, called Neurocomic, uh, which debuted, debuted in the U.S. a couple months ago. And um, I saw it at the MoCA Festival yeah. from Nobrow, on the Nobrow table. You betcha. Um, and really what we're trying to do uh, with that work is illustrate some of the key concepts around digital communications and surveillance. Um, you know, a picture is worth more than a thousand <laughs> words in that case. Um, and, and, you know, I think what we're, what we're hoping to do is this idea of taking these invisible systems, you know, digital systems that are not visible to us and making them visible, right? And that lets us talk about them. Um, that just lets us talk uh. about them in, in the first place. And so, um, yeah, looking forward to having that come out next month. So, so I'm kind of a, a not a very optimistic person uh, <laughs> when it comes to this. I actually am more on the side that, you know, again, everything will be used against us and it's going to be very, very ugly once they have all this data at their fingerprint fingertips. It's not just selling us David McKellar books or David right. McKellar t-shirts. It's much more <laughs> about taking away what, you know, can, can, how we can be managed and surveilled and herded as a herd. But what about you? Are you optimistic about where we're going as a society, country, when it comes to surveillance? I mean, I think, you know, I, I will say that I, I, I do reflect on earlier times. You know, I remember, um, and I've sort of studied this portion of history, you know, this, this country has gone through some pretty dark times with surveillance before, you know, if you think about the McCarthy era and, uh, and you know, the Red Scare and all that stuff. Um, you know, there's a, there's a time when people were expected to regularly sign loyalty oaths to the United States, um, and that was not that long ago. Um, and I think, you know, we came through some of that. So... Um, I think it's I think it's that I think also as I said you know one of the one of the rules is that if you're looking for a needle in a haystack the last thing you want to do is make the haystack bigger um, which I think is what we're yeah. doing right now what's happening with this data collection and um, I I think that you know we'll start to see I think unfortunately in some cases we have seen you know I think with you know the Boston bombing it was kind of this you know there were there were flags there and uh, you know there's not time to follow up every potential lead and so if they're not good ones you end up missing the stuff that's really serious and so I think we're going to start to un you know you'll start to appreciate uh, that that this doesn't work the way they, that we think it's going to you know and and you know, more data means more people, means more opportunities for breaches. You know, it's not, it's too unwieldy. Um, and so I think that as a practical matter, uh, we'll start to see some, some pullback from this. And as a and as legal and political matter, I think we're going to start to see uh, much more uh, organized uh, opposition to this. Well, I, I am happy to go to that future <laughs> with you. Um, I want to thank you again for helping us here at WFMU make some of these invisible systems and invisible uh, data collection surveillance systems visible as well and susan mcgregor it's been really great having you here Thank thanks you again so much so you are listening to wfmu east orange wmfu mount hope in rockland county at 91.9 fm and online at wfmu.org thanks to lisberg and ken friedman and ruth who uh, helped us with uh, uh, the video uh, feed today. I hope you uh, enjoyed seeing some of those. The whole thing will be archived, and stay tuned. Um, Irene will be on in a few moments. Cross the 
Buckets of rain fell in Amsterdam Swallowed the soles of my feet And you took a train down the south of Crete With promises that we 